a stunning, remarkable win for Democrats. Not a red trickle, maybe a blue crush. This is Matt Robeson on the Balance of Power Roundtable, broadcast on WKXL, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm joined, as always, by our panel of former U.S. Congressman and Democrat, Paul Hodes, and conservative commentator, analyst, and consultant, Alicia Preston. It really is a surprising set of results, given the media narrative that had started to form. If there was a red wave forming, it was mostly in the press and also in the polling that we were seeing in the last week. Some of us were pumping the brakes on that just a little bit. I did a show earlier this week in the Beyond Politics podcast feed with Bernie Sanders, former chief of staff, Michael Ian Kroll, in which we said, look, there is still a real chance that Democrats are going to do quite well here. We couldn't dismiss any outcome happening. But now, as the results are mostly in, not fully, as we record this on Wednesday morning, it does look like a very strong night for Democrats. And we're going to try to unpack all of that. Paul, I want to turn to you first. Obviously, as a Democrat, as a former member of Congress, as a former member of the House, you were feeling as much anxiety about what was about to befall America and the Democratic Party as anyone what was your reaction? What do you think is the significance of the results we're seeing this morning? Well, on the on the one hand, this is historic. Democrats defied all the odds about midterms. Folks may recall that I ran for the U.S. Senate in 2010. That was a huge wave year in which the Democrats lost 60 seats in the House. And frankly, back in the spring, that's what Democrats were 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 were, were facing, some kind of massive red wave. And then things gradually changed and we started seeing signs of life for Democrats. And then in the last few weeks, the the media, the corporate media and lots of people have been pointing to trends which suggested that the Republicans would do very well talking about immigration and crime and that the Supreme Court abortion in insurrection and denial of democracy were not that important. This election proved those folks wrong. Young people and women seem to have come out in record numbers. There was a huge turnout, which is really good for democracy, no matter which side of the ballot you're on. That said, it's a historic result. Final results aren't in. There is even a chance, unthinkable, just a few days ago that Democrats might keep the House. It, it, there's a chance. But even a narrow loss of the House and what looks like holding the Senate is important. That's on the federal level. But what's really important, I think, is to take a look at what's happened down the ballot, so to speak, what's been happening in state legislatures, what's been happening with governors. And we can get into that in more detail. But in various places, anti-abortion amendments were soundly defeated. Some important state legislators, legislatures flip to Democrats like Michigan, and we picked up seats as governor. Given, given the dysfunction in Washington, what's going on in the states is really important for our democracy. Now, that all said, and I'll just finish with this, I'm not crowing about this. I'm really glad, and it is historic. But what it shows is we have an incredibly deeply divided nation. And hopefully this will be a warning bell for Republicans who will reject Trump and Trumpism and come back to their roots because they they defied the expectations of their big win because of a packed Supreme Court, because of abortion and because of Trump. That was the those were the albatrosses around the Republicans neck. And we're hoping they'll come back to the kinds of values and principles that our good friend Alicia Preston espouses. 
Well, I don't want to ask you about that, Alicia, because, you know, you, you've got to be feeling some mixture of emotions about this outcome. On the one hand, you, you've you been you're still a Republican and you kind of go team. You want your team to win. On the other hand, you've been as outspoken as any Republican I know. And I know a bunch who have been kind of saying we've got to change course. We've got to get back to the core principles of the party. And it does seem like maybe this is a, a potential pivot point, but I'm maybe putting words in your mouth. What was your reaction to this result? My emotions are literally all over the place. Look, I'm a Republican because I profoundly believe in conservative principles of individual freedoms, of less government is better government, of leaving more money in struggling families' pockets. These are reasons of individual liberties on a daily basis. That's why I'm a Republican. And therefore, I'm sad that you know we're not going to have more of them in the federal offices to carry out the policy that goes with those principles. However, MAGA, Donald Trump wasn't on the ballot yesterday. MAGA was. And MAGA lost. And for that, I am pleased. And I'm going to get in a whole lot of hot water for that. But I want my country back. And it's not the extreme left pushing pushing socialism that's hijacked the nation. It's extremism as a whole. And a lot of that is on the right, is the MAGA. And I'm glad there was this pushback by middle America to say, we don't want that anymore. We're done with it. So for that, I'm pleased. I'm further displeased in some of the response from my Republican brethren this morning that still don't see it, that are now championing when Donald Trump announces in a couple of weeks he's running for president. I love this guy. Wake up, Republicans. America has rejected Donald Trump and MAGA again. And it's extremism from the right at this point that is causing such discourse. And we've got to get over it, get out of the fever, get out of the cult. Stop drinking the Kool-Aid and have a cup of London fog tea. Do whatever it is you have to do. Shake it off and move on if we want to be able to reinstill the principles that actually made us Republicans to begin with long before Donald Trump decided he'd be one. I want to turn right back to you about this process of introspection that maybe silver lining. There is an opportunity for Republicans to undergo here. And by the way, for Democrats, if they're wise to do as well. But just to quickly note, Paul, what you were saying before, Donald Trump lost 40 House seats in his first midterm. Barack Obama lost 63 seats in his first midterm. I apologize. I was up much of the night watching all these results and doom scrolling like many of our listeners. Bill Clinton lost 52 seats in his first midterm. Reagan, 26, Carter, 15, yada, yada. And so make no mistake, there is a historic pattern here and all the headlines that I'm seeing this morning of, oh, it wasn't a red wave. It was a red trickle because, look, the headline writers were also up all night. They're tired. They're going for the trite stuff. They're wrong. That's wrong. This was not a red trickle. It wasn't a red anything. Given all of the headwinds, historical and otherwise, that Democrats were facing, the fact that they did so well, as Paul pointed out, in these key secretary of state races in places like Michigan and Arizona, that they did so well in these key gubernatorial races in places like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. The fact that they have a real chance at this hour of holding the U.S. Senate and they still have an outside chance of holding the U.S. House. This was not a red anything. This was a stunning overperformance 
not really by the Democratic Party. I, I think that, you, Paul, you're right. That would sound too much like taking credit for something. This is a stunning message from voters about what they want and what they definitively do not want. And that takes us right back to your point, Alicia, because it does seem like so much of the media analysis overnight is so glib and we can get more into this. I don't think people really know. I think we're kind of picking at little breadcrumbs here and there of indications of what might have happened. But make no mistake, there is a repudiation of what Republicans had on offer here. You know, my friend Cliff Schechter, who we do a lot of videos on his YouTube channel, currently called The Takedown, probably going to be rebranded as Blue Amp, did a video commentary yesterday where he talked about an incident going to vote where someone working the polling area for for the Republicans outside the polling area tried to hand him a sample ballot. And he said, no, no, thank you. (laughs) That's that's not for me. And they said, well, hope you enjoy the inflation. And that's really the point here is that in the face of high inflation and all the issues we've talked about on this show for this kind of result from voters to say, here's what here's all the reasons we could vote hands down for Republicans. And we're not doing that. There is a message in that. Okay, so with my rant over of the morning, no, I'm going to have more rants. Alicia, we've seen one attempt in recent political history of a major political party, the Republicans, trying to do a reset, trying to be introspective and look in the mirror after the 2012 elections. They they did a whole postmortem. They did a whole analysis of where the party needed to go. And They tried for like six months to say, all right, we're going to plot a new course on immigration. We're going to plot a new course on our language. We're going to plot a new course on marriage equality. It didn't stick. And then we saw things shift dramatically back in the other direction. So my two-part question to you is, do Republicans need to do that? Is it time for a look in the mirror moment? And will they be able to? Yes and no. And here's why. Those kind of shifts are messaging shifts. They're policy shifts. They're what are the people talking about shifts. We need to empathize with the people, get on their side with the people. Those are political strategic shifts. That's not what we've got as a problem right now. We've got a one person problem. We have a one person problem and it is Donald Trump. You know, I'm at an election watch party last night and a very educated, smart woman came up to me as the numbers in my state were not going in our direction and said, if we lose, I think it's fraud. And I go, oh, we're going to lose. And she goes, so it's fraud, right? I go, no, it's because all you people keep talking about is fraud that didn't exist. And she looked at me like I had five heads, but that was the reality. But that mentality is not going to change because Donald Trump is still on the forefront. And. It doesn't matter. Look, we're right about inflation. I still maintain abortion did not have big swings in some of these House seats in particular. And you can tell that by some of the state races that still maintain Republican. But what was on the ballot was MAGA. MAGA lost. And my problem is that there is a huge portion of the Republican Party that doesn't see it, doesn't accept it, doesn't realize it. So it's a very different kind of pitch and twist that would have to take place, unlike 2012. And I'm not sure the individuals within the party either see it or are willing to do it because they drank the Trump Kool-Aid. Paul, let's drill down into the specifics. And I want to put in the parking lot this question of whether the Democrats have to do a little introspection as well. 
and and whether we'll be able to do that. But uh, we'll, we'll circle back to that. I, I want to I want to talk about the practicalities of this for a second. First, what is the actual impact going to be from these results as we know them now? They're they're not complete. They're not final. We don't know all of the answers yet. But what does it look like the actual impact is going to be on the balance of power in this country? Well, the Democrats have had a very slim majority in the House and the Senate for the first two years, essentially, of the Biden term. And the Democrats have been able to push through historic legislation, which will have significant impact on the country in the years to come. The impact may not have been felt as directly during these midterms. And Democrats have been struggling, as we all have as a nation, with inflation, not caused by Democrats, frankly, but by world events over which uh, we have very little control. If we lose the House, we will lose the House very narrowly. That makes for a kind of challenging and ungovernable majority, a slim majority for Republicans that will be difficult to control because you're going to have a huge MAGA influence and wing in the in the Republican Party. You're still going to have all these whack jobs on the far, far right. And you may have some reset from leadership of the Republicans in the House who are saying, trying to tell them, trying to control their MAGA colleagues and and wrestle, wrestle some votes out of the House. So then we turn to the U.S. Senate. I guess at the very best, Democrats will hold a hold the Senate to either even or maybe even by a one seat a one seat majority. In any event, it's going to be really narrow. So the dysfunction we've seen in the Senate over filibusters and trying to use reconciliation instead of normal processes, et cetera, would continue even with a very slim majority. If we lose both houses narrowly, despite whatever challenges the Republicans face in gathering their coalition and amassing their votes, we have a president who will be forced to use his veto power. And what I do predict is that if the Republicans do gain the majorities, we're going to see this flood again of really specious stuff. We're going to see national investigations into Hunter Biden. They'll try to impeach Joe Biden for what I don't know. It'll be another cavalcade of misery fueled by the MAGA, which in a very perverse way might be good for Democrats in 2024, when Democrats would then say, well, we got half the job done by keeping democracy in 2022. Young Voters and women are now empowered and they are and and we're seeing in the huge turnout something good for our democracy, people voting. And by the way, despite the intimidation of MAGA people with guns at, at ballot boxes and polling places and all that, we haven't heard much about real, real problems with elections. We've heard the normal kinds of administrative snafus, but nothing nothing violent that we have heard of. Yeah. Can I pause you on that one for a second? Because I think that's a, that's a takeaway that we should really hit and that we can all applaud is that after all of the concern that I think we've shared, and this is one place where we can still say on a bipartisan basis and mean it, voting was relatively smooth. The places where there were ballot box drop-offs and mail-in voting, that seemed to go pretty well. And 
for the most part, I mean, Carrie Lake notwithstanding, people who lost conceded last night. We're not, I mean, there there still could be recounts. There still could be, you know, there, there, it looks like there's going to be a, 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 another vote coming in Georgia. I mean, there's there's more things to come. But this all went stunningly well from that standpoint. And in itself, disproves the big lie. We had a smooth, traditional American election that even with all these MAGA nut jobs on the ballot, for the most part, they're not like they're not spouting conspiracy theories. They're not like, you know, we're, we're not going down that rabbit hole. That's that's amazing. That's that's really that's incredible. Big. Oh, wait, Alicia looks skeptical. Give it a no. give it a day or two. Matt. No. Come on. <laughs> All right. Well, Twitter is going to be a bustle. <laughs> well, Twitter, Twitter, Twitter twi- is Twitter relevant anymore. I mean, now oh, it's, it's being still relevant, but it's will it be in six months? It's being controlled by a neo-Nazi with no employees. Come on. I actually well. agree with you, Matt, on the concession part, because what we saw two years ago was a lot of people just refused to do it. They were following the lead of the leader and it was more conciliatory than times past. You're still going to have the crazies out there talking about how there was fraud here and they're going to come up with conspiracy theories. But the reality is the margins in a lot of these races that were supposed to be very, very tight and go Republican weren't even very, very tight. You know, I can look at some states. They were saying the Republicans ahead by three points and lost by nine. So I think there was a point that Republicans who were losing and losing bigger than anticipated had to say, all right, do I want a future here? I've got to do the right thing and and be a grown up and and concede. And so I was pleased to see that, particularly in certain states. I didn't expect it to be so calm. But Look, I have full faith and I always have in the overall election integrity of the United States of America. I think we do a good job. I think people take it seriously. I think Georgia is an important state to look at when it comes to this, because Raffenberger, the secretary of state who was at the forefront of the battle with Donald Trump two years ago, he won his reelection. And that's because people feel that he did his job last time and he could do it again in safe and secure elections in that state of Georgia. So there is some positives to take away. Lauren Bolbert, potentially losing is my chuckle of the morning, but we can get into more of that. Oh, couldn't have happened to a nicer person. I mean, oh, and, and just do yourself a favor. I, I never want to send people to Twitter unless they're going to follow me. I'm at Matt L. Robeson, but do, spend like two minutes on Twitter and just look at like the how it was going, how it's going now. Freeze frame of Lauren Boebert yesterday, like the red wave is here. And it's like, oh, no, you lost. All right. I want to talk a little bit about the situation in the U.S. House of Representatives. First of all, I'd maintain that this morning, the most depressed man in America who's probably drinking very, very heavily is Kevin McCarthy. I think there are three things. (laughs) It's true. There is true. And I know what he drinks, by the way. And he is. I'm sure he's. Yeah, you've gone to dinner with him. You've actually you've you've gone drinking with Kevin McCarthy. He's hitting. I bet he's hitting the sauce pretty hard. Which way do I flop now? He's trying to think to myself, do I go to Mar-a-Lago and 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 genuflect in front of Trump and say, I'm so sorry, I'm about to reject you? Or do I do I turn to my House colleagues and and say, I may not be too smart, but it looks like we got pasted and maybe we ought to change. All right. We got three ways that this could go, because right now I agree with you that Kevin McCarthy is currently somewhere in America, probably in California, indulging in a Cersei Lannister level of day drinking. I think there are only three ways that this could go. One is Democrats right now, as we record this, they've got about a 17 percent chance of 
pulling out the house, pulling out a majority in the house. It's like drawing an inside straight in poker. That could happen. So one thing that could happen here is despite what looked like a gimme, what people were talking about is a 30, 40 seat red wave. Kevin McCarthy could be the leader of a party who fumbled that away and he loses the speakership. That would be crushing mm. and it couldn't happen to mm. a nicer guy. So that, that's one outcome. That, that's, that's bad. Here's another outcome. There's already insider whispers from Republican circles in the House that if even if they eke out a majority with anything fewer than 225 seats, which could be about the, the range they're looking at, the knives will be out within the Republican Party for Kevin McCarthy. They're going to be looking for a scapegoat. They're not going to be able to publicly say this is all Donald Trump's fault, like Alicia Preston just had the backbone to say. And so they're they're going to they're going to point fingers and knives at Kevin McCarthy and he might get thrown overboard and he might lose his dream job of being Speaker of the House. That's a second possible outcome. And that would be really bad. The third possible outcome is that Kevin McCarthy is going to spend the morning getting acquainted with the taste of Marjorie Taylor Greene's boots because he's going to spend so much time licking them over the next two years. He will become speaker, but he will only be able to do so by cutting a deal with extremists within his own caucus in the Freedom Caucus and the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world to empower them. And he's going to spend the next two years chasing down their lobbed crazy bombs. Those are the three possibilities. They're all terrible for him. What am I missing? All I'm saying, all I want to say is this, just to follow up in a in a in a very careful way. The image of Kevin McCarthy licking Marjorie Taylor Greene's boots is I think is is not quite apt. It's more like a frozen metal pole to which his tongue gets stuck as he tries to lick the frozen metal pole and go on from there to speak to his colleagues. So Kevin McCarthy, good on you. Good luck. Just put your tongue right out onto that frozen metal pole. All right, Alicia, you know, Republicans better than I do. But I, I mean, am I wrong? What am I missing? No, you're not wrong. And I will never get any of those visions of lickings of Marjorie Taylor Greene's boots or whatever out of my brain. So thank you, because I haven't <laughs> slept much. And now it's just burning my eyes. Look, Kevin McCarthy's in a tough position, and I'd like to give him the path to potential victory as a human being over victory as a Speaker of the House. Realize what happened. I think that Republicans are going to get control of the House because the undetermined races would have to break so hard for Democrats. I don't see it mathematically happening. Kevin McCarthy needs to do what a true leader does, acknowledge what occurred, change course, say, let's get back to our principles and our foundings, ignore Marjorie Taylor Greene and everything she stands for because the American people as a whole just rejected it and do what is good for the country. And if he loses a speakership because of it, he can sleep at night and look his children in the eyes. I think that's a lovely vision for what a good leader would do. It's a much better vision than the one you guys gave me about Marjorie Taylor and licking her feet or whatever. <laughs> no, no, not her feet, just her boots or <laughs> the frozen no, no, pole. Stop, that stop there. No, no, Marjorie no, no. Taylor Green. Oh, God. I, don't, let's go no further. You know, Paul, I... I before we we move off of the question of a little bit of introspection, again, that Alicia was calling for here, right? Like, OK, things didn't go well. Let's look at it. You know, in medicine, they have what's called an M&M, a morbidity and mortality conference. If things go badly, if you if something bad happens to a patient, all the 
the doctors will get together and they'll say, what went wrong? What do we learn from it? And we don't do this in politics most of the time. And Kevin McCarthy would be well served to do that. So would the whole Republican Party. But it's interesting to me. Can, can is, I just oh, yeah, sorry, go. can I just I want to make one point. That may be true. And and we, we'd we hope that the Republicans would take a look and come back to Alicia Preston's principles. And I'm going to urge Alicia to run for president because she'd be a, a good a good candidate. She'd lose, but she'd be a good candidate. But for Democrats, and this is something Democrats I don't think are very good at. I think Democrats need to take a very careful assessment and look, not without crowing about what happened. Yes, it's historic. Yes, it's great. But Democrats need to take a a look at fundamentally the way many people in the country see Democrats. We can say, yes, all these people saw that we stand for women's rights and human rights and freedom against insurrection. But with a with a bare bare majority in this country for 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 Democrats, we really need to take an internal look. What's our messaging? What do we stand for? How do we communicate it? And how do I think part of the work is how do we show people that we're not the crazy extreme socialists they're branding us as? And and how do we do that? It is worth introspection for the Democratic Party to carefully assess. We may have won this one, but this is a long, long battle for the soul of American democracy. But that's exactly where I wanted to go. Perfectly said. Oh, go ahead, Alicia. I was just going to say, I, I agree with Paul. And here's the thing. We're looking this morning like Republicans lost and Democrats won because what the expectations were, what historically would normally happen. That is a true overall statement that because of what should have occurred, there should have been a red wave. Therefore, Republicans were well below expectations and didn't do as well as they should have. But at the end of the day, I think Republicans are still going to have the House. I don't know what's going to happen in the U.S. Senate. It's probably going to be 50-50. We have a shot at 51-49. But but Republicans still lost because we should have done so much better. That being said, this is not a mandate on Democratic policies. And I mean, I, I think too often when a Republicans win something or beat expectations and Democrats win something or beat expectations, they automatically think it's everyone loves our policy positions and our standpoints. That is not what happened in 2022. It had very little to do with policy. It had much more to do with character and where people wanted to feel comfortable with the country going. And I think it would behoove Republicans and Democrats to realize that none of this was really based on on much policy other than the forward thinking of the nation, whether that's economic or whether that is protection of our elections and our democracy. Yeah, we can move off this point because I think we're all in agreement. I, I, I would only add that this is something that's so hard to do anytime you view yourself as successful. In any domain, in sports, in business, in, in in anything in life, and it's super duper true in politics that you never walk out of something where you say, hey, we won. Now, let's examine all the things we could have done better, but you should. It would be incredibly healthy to do that. And everything that we've said in recent weeks on this show about, hey, Democrats, why didn't we have a clearer more cohesive economic message, talking about the positive accomplishments we have, acknowledging and empathizing with some of the struggles that Americans are going through with high prices. Why weren't we better about that? That's still true. It's still real. Even with a good result, you know, no one wants to look a gift horse in the mouth. Fine. But the reason you should 
is that sometimes that horse is full of Trojans who are going to jump out and try to burn your city to the ground. Let's let's talk about the Trump of this for a second. You know, it's kind of the, the scuttlebutt this morning among the analyst and the punditocracy class is that it was a really, really rough night for Donald Trump, that his preferred candidates by and large lost and that Ron DeSantis, who looks to be his nearest rival in 2024, absolutely stone cold crushed in Florida. And so you have people waking up this morning and saying, is Trump really like good for the party? Is he really good for what we want? Alicia, again, I'm going to turn to you for finger on the pulse. Like, was this really a bad night for Trump? Is it really going to matter? Well, the answer to the first question is yes. The answer to the second is I have no idea. Look, what was interesting in the final weeks of the general election across the country, Trump started to come out and give endorsements where he hadn't given them before. And my theory on that and other theories on that was because he started to see some of these pro-Trump candidates that he hadn't bothered dancing with before looking like they might win and he wanted to take credit for it when they do. Well, those candidates, for the most part, lost. So now the question is, does Trump recognize this? Does he realize it? Do the people around him inform him of it? That this alleged announcement in the middle of another week or so of his running for president, does he hold back? Did he hold back before the midterms because he wanted to see what the results are? And does he calculate things that way? I don't know. I'm putting a rational spin and strategic concept on someone who I think is neither. So I don't know what he's going to do. But yes, there was a big statement about Donald Trump given by America yesterday. And that is true, even if Republicans get the House and get the U.S. Senate. That is that that is a statement, even if both of those things happen. It's a repudiation of MAGA. And I don't know what Donald Trump will do. He is damaging the party. He is damaging our opportunity. There were some great non-MAGA candidates that lost yesterday, even on state levels, just because they had an R next to their name and and a lot of independents came out and said, we're going in a different direction. We don't want to be associated with Donald Trump. So Republicans have to do some soul searching. We have to figure out what we're going to do if we want to win again so we can in fact affect policy as opposed to culture in the United States. Mm. And Paul? Well, Florida is pretty interesting because what we saw, I, I happen to be watching MSNBC, who graphically uh, so on brand for you, Paul. Hang on, so of course hang you on, are. No kidding. <laughs> no, no, no. Wait, wait a second. Wait a second. I'm just going to talk about <laughs> statistics and numbers. I'm not talking about opinion or anything else, but showed pretty graphically how Florida has shifted to Republicans over the past decade. There were pickups for Republicans in House seats because of the gerrymandered districts. DeSantis crushed it there. It is pretty clear now that Democrats have a real problem with Hispanics and uh, Latin and the Latino vote, certainly as dem if you follow the results in Florida. I'm not so sure what we'll see out of the Latino vote in other parts of the West, but certainly in Miami-Dade County, the conservative Cuban community and other Latinos went big for Republicans. So Florida has 29 electoral votes. There's a real challenge for Democrats in the 2024 presidential election if Florida is solidly Republican. It goes along with saying that Democrats need to look inward as well. Trump, it doesn't matter what anybody says to Trump. His people can tell him what happened and why it happened. 
He won't believe anything. He'll simply, he's pathologically unable to accept reality in, in that way, especially when it comes to electoral politics. He's going to announce for president. He's going he's gonna to hopefully take the party down with him even further in 2024 if he's nominee. This election is a good harbinger for democracy if Trump runs again, which I think he will. Well, I think there's certainly a scenario here where everyone overreads what happened, kind of per your point, Alicia, last night. And Democrats tell themselves, hey, we did great. Fantastic. Everything's working spectacularly. And there's already reporting out of the White House this morning that Joe Biden is like, oh, I'm definitely in. Notwithstanding the fact that, you know, the 2024 election is two years away. Who knows what's going to happen in the the interim? And Donald Trump is, I think you're right, Paul, he's congenitally unable to engage in any searching in the mirror or thinking about charting a different course. So we're probably on track for this kind of a showdown. And it's, it's not clear to me that the lessons that we're going to take away from last night are the right lessons. I, I, I do want to get much more into that, into that question. Let me just ask a, a quick one in between. CNN, we haven't talked about, we're on air in New Hampshire. We haven't talked about the New Hampshire of any of this. There was a lot of polling toward the end suggesting that Senator Maggie Hassan might lose and that the two Democratic House members might lose. They did not. All the Democrats won. But at the very, very top of the ticket, Republican Governor and star in Alicia Preston's sky, Chris Sununu, (laughs) won and won fairly handily. CNN was falling all over themselves to talk about, this is great. There was a lot of split ticket voting in Georgia and New Hampshire and a couple of other places. This means that bipartisanship and democracy is alive and well in America. I don't want to overdo it quite to that degree, but what, what does the split ticket outcome mean here, Alicia? You know, that's hard to say in the postmortem over the next several days as we analyze will come out. But let me give one anecdotal story. My daughter voted yesterday for the very first time. She just turned 18. She was very excited to vote, first of all, which I think is pretty cool. How excited she was as an 18 year old to be part of the process. She wore her little I voted pin when we went to sticker. when We went to the store, took selfies of it, posted it on social. And she asked me to go into the booth over there because she's never voted before. And she had done her research and I watched her how she voted and she voted back and forth on the ticket. I'm not going to say who she voted for. That's her business. But it was interesting to me that as an 18 year old, she had done her research and she voted for some Republicans. She voted for some Democrats and she registered herself as undeclared. She didn't want to be with either party. And I think we've got a young phenomena going on. They're not just independent because they don't join a party. They're independent thinkers. I I stood at polls for four hours yesterday. It was like, have you ever been outside a big concert hall when the concert gets out and people just flood in droves over like grass and streets? That was what was incoming to the election site. And there were so many young people. And so this is anecdotal, but there is something going on where young people are taking the concept of nonpartisanship and and really going forward with it. And I think that's where we're going to start seeing a lot of cross-ticket voters. They, they're rejecting our generation, pushing, be a Republican, be a Democrat. And they're embracing individuality. Just to pick up for a second on the theme of young people voting, and congratulations to your daughter, Alicia. That was an interesting set of 
exit poll data that we got overnight. It's exit poll data, people. If you take your polling with a grain of salt, and we'll talk about that in a second, take your exit polls with a bigger grain of salt. But the numbers are so distinct that I think that there is something to them. This is from CNN, CNN National House exit poll data brought to us by John Della Volpe of Harvard, who says that if you're age 65 plus, if you're a senior in America, that broke by 13 points for Republicans. If you are in my age demographic, you're between 45 and 64, and mostly on the the younger side of that, right? You Mm -hmm. broke 11 points for Republicans. But then if you're age 30 through 44, it was plus two for Democrats. And if you were in Gen Z, if you're between the ages of 18 and 29, it broke by 28 points for Democrats. So what tends to happen in midterm elections is you have lower turnout overall, and the turnout skews more toward older voters who have more of an ingrained voting habit. They're more dedicated voters. And because you get less young voters in midterms, it tends to, over the last 20 years, it tends to favor Republicans. One of the early indications, Paul, you alluded to this a moment ago, we have some catalyst data that's that's come out overnight. An early look says that turn up overall is, it, 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 turnout overall is up and young people showed up. They, they turned out and they turned out in numbers where that advantage for Democrats nullified some of the advantage for Republicans, one of the reasons that you're seeing this advantage uh, for Democrats overall across the board. All right. So all that said, we were just talking about the Trump of all of this. That's that's always fun. And then we talked a little bit about the split ticket factor. Let's just touch for a brief second on the American democracy piece of this. I know we alluded to it earlier in the show, but Alicia, you were saying that you anticipate that there will still be some high profile recounts, perhaps a few candidates who, who question the results. But what do you think in terms of that larger trajectory of the big lie? Where does the big lie go from here? Is it is it maybe, if not dead, on the path to dying? Or is Donald Trump going to be able to keep it alive? I think with a, a portion of the Republican population, he will always keep it alive. I think that portion is and will continue to shrink in the coming days, weeks and months. And that's a good thing. You know, you've got people like Laura Ingram out there on Twitter saying that Democrats only won because of early voting and that they're going to get their butts whipped in two years. And I just shake my head and rattle my phone going, wake up, people, because there are too many people with big voices like hers that will perpetuate this nonsense. But I do think that we're going to see a a slow death of, and it will at least be more marginalized. I mean, I can tell you as someone who has rejected the big lie since day one, I was in the minority. I got beat up quite a bit over the last two years. And I think I'm finally going to be in the majority within my party. And it may take a little time, but I think we're going to get there. Mm, Strikes me as right. That strikes me as right, Paul. Look, I think the big lie is tied in large part to Trump. And hopefully as Trump 
is weakened, so will the big lie. What's interesting is I'm, I just pulled up on Fox 29, whatever Fox 29 is, all the chatter on my conservative and GOP channels is rage at Trump like I've never seen. Michael Brendan Doherty, a senior writer at National Review, wrote on Twitter. The one guy he attacked before Election Day was DeSantis, the clear winner. Meanwhile, all his guys are you-know-what, the bed. I inserted the you-know-what. They're saying that 2024 is now a free-for-all. Everybody in the is, is, jump in the water if you want to take on Trump. He's never been weaker. So, so assuming that is true, and and Trump is Trump has been a cat with 47 lives. You never know what's going to happen. He'll announce. He'll be indicted. Who knows what at this point? But if in fact the Republicans see Trump as weaker, and they actually take stock of what happened in this election in an objective way. Maybe the cries of the big lie from elected leaders who who have a bully pulpit and commentators like Fox will will decrease and we will perhaps slowly, slowly see a some rebirth of the Republican Party as a responsible minority in this country, nothing would be better for democracy than to have well, Republicans as a perennial responsible minority. <laughs> well, the other fact, that's that's some wish casting there, but I like it. You know, <laughs> one, one other factor I would throw in here is there's some voter education that may happen through the process of a lot of what we saw in 2020 was, do you remember like red mirage, and and the 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 order of the count creates this perception that one candidate is ahead and this idea that oh we had a lead and we lost it a lot of donald trump's big lie talk hinged on that early perception now the order that they do the count is different in different states some states mandate that you do absentee ballots first some mandate that you do drop off ballot boxes, an early vote first. Some, like Pennsylvania, won't let you open any mail ballots until after election day. You can't start counting in advance. And so there's all these different rules and you get used to different effects. But take an example, like where things stand right now in Nevada. You've got Catherine Cortez Masto up against Adam Laxalt. It is a very close election with Laxalt in the lead as we record this. And if you look at the results we have on voting county by county, it looks like there's a huge chunk that remains outstanding in Clark County, 164,000 votes. And Cortez Masto has a five-point lead in that county so far. <coughs> if that pans out, she would stand to gain as the rest of the vote is counted about 8,200 votes. And then you look at the other counties kind of going down the list where Laxalt has an advantage and you add it all up. And it looks like based on that vote alone, that Laxalt should hold his current lead or maybe add about 10,000 votes to it. But, but, but John Ralston, the dean of the Nevada press corps, has pointed out that there are about 100,000 mail-in votes and the order of the count matters there. And it looks like, based on the way those votes have broken, that Cortez Masto may make up that lead and eventually pull ahead. And so as you go through more and more iterations in more and more states 
of these kinds of things happening. And as we get used to doing more and more elections where there's a split, there's some votes that come in this way, some votes that come in that way, and it takes some time to unwind it all. I think the suspicion about what's going on as they do the count is hopefully going to fade. It will be fueled by Trump MAGA types who will try to take advantage of it. But I think voters will get increasingly used to that and it will seem less and less exotic, less and less suspicious. And they'll say, oh, yeah, that's just the way we count votes in this country. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's that's really the takeaway from this is that democracy worked. democracy worked. And, you know, I use democracy as a as a as a it's a placeholder, but democracy, democracy worked. Whether we have a true democracy or not, we can talk about in it at some other time. But the 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 sort of the, it's kind of like the 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 follow on to the response about January 6th was the institutions held. And here, despite all the concerns and all the election deniers on the ballot and all the all the the division and split down the middle for this country the in it seems to me that that we're breathing a collective sigh of relief because the institutions held i i i want us to get back and i think that's what the message here for this from the country is We've got a lot of we're facing a lot of challenges globally and domestically, and we want to get back to a place where we can talk about those challenges instead of having to continually be distracted by by assaults on democracy and the integrity of our institutions. No, I think they'll always be conspiracy theorists, but I think they're going to, as I noted, be more marginalized. And you're right. There's a process. And and we like to question process. We like to find a flaw in every jar of honey. But I think most people have faith and confidence in our election system. But now, can I, while you were talking and I was listening to you, I, I had a whole new theory about Republicans moving forward. I like the disclaimer that you were actually listening to me, but you, you're able to multitask. Well, it made me realize, Okay, we're going to look and see how these numbers go. Who's going to get the House? Who's going to get the Senate? Right now, Republicans are feeling defeated because the wave didn't happen. However, what if Republicans get the House, which I think they will? And then in December, God forbid, Herschel Walker (laughs) wins the runoff in the Georgia Senate. And all of a sudden, we've got 51 Republicans in the Senate. And we've got a majority in the House and the fog of election night is over and we wake up after the holidays and Republicans say we won the House, we won the Senate. This was a mandate and we go right back to where we were yesterday. That's where I wrote in Newsweek back in May an article about why close matters and You're right, Alicia. You're so right. We should not get ahead of ourselves. I still think that compared to expectations, this was a huge night for Democrats. But it is true that at the end of the day, power is everything. And it's still quite possible that Republicans will control the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate come December. And so, yes, that is that would change our perceptions of what the election was about what the outcome was, but it would still close still matters. 
because we talked about the fact that Kevin McCarthy is going to have an extremely difficult, if it's even him, any, any the Republicans are going to have an extremely unwieldy majority in the house. Their ability to do unhinged stuff is going to be restricted and the unhinged stuff they do, as Paul, you were saying a moment ago, might have a major silver lining for Democrats. You know, the ability for for Republicans like to empower Marjorie Taylor Greene and and other nut jobs and for them to show America what they're all about. That's not necessarily all bad for Democrats. You know, it would be a, a bummer for I think the the Democrats agenda for Republicans to hold majorities in both of those chambers, but they're not going to have a veto proof majority. They're not going to have an unrestrained ability to unwind Democrats accomplishments. I think it would change our perceptions a little bit, but it wouldn't change my basic conclusion that this should have been an outright drubbing and it was not. And in a lot of races that matter at the state level, Democrats overperformed and won an outright one. So that's that's my view. Look, you're, I, you're, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Paul. I, sorry. I it will mean kind of a stasis in in government. We've we've we're 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 used to that. We've seen where there's a a president of one party and and opposing chambers in in Congress. We saw it. We saw it with Obama, who got a lot done and frankly got reelected after he had to deal with a much more crushing crushing loss. So it's not unknown. And there are many Americans who say, hey, we kind of like it that way. The less the government gets done, the better off we are. I mean, that fits the small government model of Alicia. Let's not get anything done. Nothing is better than something. Now, that's no way to govern. That's no way to have progress. It's no way to deal with the challenges we face. But putting that aside, Americans are, many Americans are, are, are comfortable with that. But let's, uh, let me say this, that, that, if we still take that dysfunction and deal with it, and we still say, yes, Democrats exceeded expectations and there was no red wave. And yes, even with a divided government, we're we're going to be able to keep to, to, to save our democracy. Democrats need to take a deep dive, deep look at our message, how we're communicating it so that this midterm result doesn't come as an outlier in future elections, but become something that we can build on rather than a singular example of a better result than we had hoped. But let's but let's just examine for one second. How would this play out? Let's say Alicia's scenario comes to pass and we have a Republican at, at the very least, a Republican House and maybe also a Republican Senate. Let's say Kevin McCarthy holds on and becomes Speaker of that Republican House. What is he going to do? Because we've seen a bit of this movie before. When Republicans gained control of the House in 2012 or in 2010, they immediately went on a jihad to try to undo the Affordable Care Act. They try, They passed in the House something on the order of 50 times a bill to repeal the Affordable Care Act. And the further they went down that road, the more Americans rejected it. And now the Affordable Care Act is popular with Americans. If you, and you think about some of the more 
unhinged things that they would do. Paul, you mentioned before, they're probably going to impeach Joe Biden. You're sitting in Kevin McCarthy's office and you're trying to advise him. If you're some hapless ex-staffer like me and you're sitting there and you're like, Kevin, what do we do here? Because if we let the Marjorie Taylor Greene faction get their way on this and we impeach Biden, voters are probably going to snap back at us like they did against Republicans in 1998 after the Clinton impeachment. They're probably going to be pretty mad at us. It's probably going to help Biden more than anything else. If they try to repeal the popular things that Democrats have accomplished, it's probably going to bounce back on them. I'm not, I guess my point is that I'm not sure that Republicans are actually going to be able to fundamentally change a lot of the policy that Democrats created in the last two years. What they could do is sort of hoist themselves on their own petard by overreaching and acting like lunatics. And that would also only help the Democrats. Am I am I being too hopeful about this? Well, I think the other thing they could do, and maybe I'm being too hopeful about this, is not do the crazy and simply not provide Joe Biden with any wins on his agendas. Right. They hold his policies at bay. What does that mean in two years? Look, I hope they don't do the crazy stuff. I I really do. But but here's the point I was making before about this scenario. When the fog of the election is over and you guys are totally right. This was a big win for Democrats, even if Republicans take the House, even if they take the Senate. Last night was a big win for Democrats because it shouldn't be this way. Historically, it's not this way. But the people that made the decision in the election yesterday don't sit and talk about this stuff on radio and and go through our phones and our computers and realize it. What do they do when all of the chitter chatters over and it's January? All they look at is that Republicans have the House and Republicans have the Senate. And what do Republicans do from there? Do they think they've got a mandate? They didn't get a mandate. Do they act like they got a mandate? They shouldn't act like they got a mandate. But I I can't predict what they're going to do. And Kevin McCarthy's got a difficult decision to make. Does he lead and recognize what really happened on Election Day 2022? Or does he, because he's not stupid, does he take the perception of a mandated win and run with it? And I hope he doesn't do the latter. It's going to be impossible for him, though. I mean, just to play out the rest of the, the scenario, you're the hapless staffer. Let's say you're you're me, but you're Alicia Preston, right? You're, you're sitting there and it's like, well, Kevin, um, boss. I mean, Paul, you and I have actually sat in rooms where I've, I've had this talk with you, except you weren't like leading the House of Representatives. It's like, well, we don't want to go down this road where we we do all this crazy stuff. But you've got Donald Trump out there truthing or tweeting or whatever it is he's he's able to do and putting pressure on you to do all this stuff. You've got a, a Trump MAGA base that still exists, that's still a majority of the Republican Party that's demanding that you do all this stuff. You you are going to be absolutely torn apart. You're going to be absolutely torn in two between Kevin's not. I mean, Paul, you've been in a, you've said yourself he is not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but even he is going to be able to see that it's not a great choice here. Well, yep. but yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's not a great choice. And I, I, I'm, I'm looking ahead to 2024 at this point. And no matter who the Democratic candidate is at the moment, we'll assume it's Joe Biden. I'm much more hopeful for 2024 and hopeful for our country. 
even as divided as it is after this election. And I'm not it's a feeling not just because I'm a Democrat, but because I'm an American. Let's talk for a second now that we've gotten kind of like the consequential stuff out of the way. Let's talk about some of the silly stuff. Polling. What do you make of 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 this? You know, obviously, some of the polling averages in some races like the Pennsylvania Senate race came pretty close to the final result. But I think it's fair to say that both polling averages and media reporting about the expectations based on them were way off. You know, where do we go from here on polling? You know, and this is going to get a little bit into the weeds, but this is the reality of it. Polling is a very difficult scientific formula, and it's gotten more difficult with modern technology. You know, it used to be the good pollsters could break out anticipated voting blocks based on years prior, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, partisan turnout, energy, all those kind of things. Now we've got a technical problem, and I really think it attributes to why polling is so off lately in so many places. You know, I pulled apart a poll that was done in my home state of New Hampshire on a federal race that I just didn't see how, you know, the Republican was six points ahead. So I took a deep dive and realized they only polled people on cell phones. Well, if you Mm. only poll people on cell phones, you're missing a senior voting block. And in my home state, they tend to be more blue than red on certain social issues like abortion. And, you know, I got two polls during the Super Bowl. Who the hell is polling in New England and not the Super Bowl during the Patriots game? I got precursor. I know what's going to come. Who polls in New England during a New England Patriots game? That may sound small, but it's not. You can skew a poll by four or five points by forgetting to tell your pollster caller people don't call between one and five. And it's either they lost the plot or the other theory is there's just so much money being thrown at pollsters. They take the check and don't worry about it. I don't know. That's a cynic in me. I, I mean, uh, I, I know it's so trite. It's so trite. It's so trite to say, don't trust the polls. Don't believe the polls. And as we said on the show on Monday with Michael Lean Kroll, Bernie's former chief of staff, I don't think any of us is saying that we all believe that there is value from polls, that there is insight to be gained from polls, but there's also To me, I think that there's clearly something deeply wrong here that it's sort of like looking at the weather forecast and saying, well, it's right a significant amount of the time. But what you don't know is, is it right for the right reasons? Like, are you are you really understanding what's going on, uh, the underlying mechanisms or are you getting lucky some of the time? And you're also wrong a lot of the time. And so there's it feels to me like there's something fundamentally broken and it could be the effects that Alicia was talking about. And look, we, we interview a lot of pollsters on this show and we respect them. We like them. We believe in what they do. But talk about a need for a little bit of introspection. Do you think that there's a need to rethink how we talk to people and get get insights from people about what matters to them and how they're going to vote? You know, in years gone by, Matt, you and I worked on a project to try to ascertain how real people saw the Democratic Party and what kind of emotionally resonant messages Democrats needed to or should have should should have adopted. We didn't get too far because Democrats, all they see, they didn't they didn't really want to go into that kind of messy, deep dive. They just wanted to support various candidates. And I say that because I'm going to contrast the method that we thought about versus 
what happens with polling, although polling played a part. And the method was, frankly, one that would have been adopted from Frank Lutz, the Republican former superstar in which you go out and you talk to real people, not not campaign staffers, talking heads, pundits and, and, and electeds. But you talk to real people about what they think. You parse out the language that they give you and then you test it with dial test polling or neuro neuro means, but you test it. And then you can do some polling to find out how it works. And then you can go to elected officials and persuade them with real results that you've got something right for them. That's an interesting use of polling to confirm what people are saying. The I, people today don't, they don't want to be polled. They're using cell phones. They're not answering. They're not telling the truth. And, and it's really gotten harder and harder to get any deep consequence out of polling. What the polling seems to show us is, okay, here are issues on people's minds. So last night when MSNBC said, Hey, 32% said inflation was their motivator, but 28% said abortion was. Did polling really pick up how vibrant that motivator was going to be? We debated it on this program. Yes, abortion is going to be. Alicia said, no way. It's all about inflation. And, and the Republicans then also used their old saws. It's immigration. It's crime. And, and at least the MSNBC graphic showed those issues down at, say, 10% of people were motivated by those. The polling has gotten really difficult in the age of social media and cell phones. So uh, pollsters, I think, are going to have to rethink methods. They're going to have to rethink what they're polling. If all we're doing is identifying some issues, will polling really be accurate to tell us how serious they are for people? And how are you going to test what let's call the overall emotional gestalt uh, of what's going on. Because in the overall emotional gestalt, which frankly motivates voters, I think more than significant issues, you we've seen the result in this election that contradicts what the pollsters said was coming. The hardest answer to give when you're on stage, when you're under the microscope is I don't know. And it's something that's incredibly hard for experts to give when, say, you're being queried by the president of the United States on a major policy topic. You know, should we invade? What will happen? You know, does Iran have a bomb? It's so hard to say, I don't know. If you're on TV, it's hard to say, I don't know. And if you're trying to answer the question coming from a candidate, it's hard to say, I don't know. And so I want to say on behalf of all of us that what you're talking about here, Paul, is a degree of uncertainty that comes from polls. And we have offered, I think, a, 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 a bunch of opinions, a bunch of what I hope are insights in the course of this show. And we have them for reasons. I think we've tried to be measured and restrained about them. Sometimes. But think, sometimes. But I think we should all acknowledge that ultimately there is a lot that we don't know. And I just want to bring this around from the polling side to the media narrative side, because what we've seen is a lot of echo chamber stuff in the last couple of weeks about, oh, the polls are telling us this, and therefore this is what's happening. And what was missing in all of that was the, 
but we don't really know. Or well, there's a lot of uncertainty about all of this. And there's a lot of pretending that we know a lot more than we do. And that matters because you see it in the in the post hoc analysis. For example, on CNN last night, they were talking about Janet Mills, the governor of Maine, mm-hmm. who defeated Paul LePage, the former governor of Maine. And the analyst was saying, well, this was a very close race over the summer, but then Paul LePage gave a bad answer in a debate, and then Janet Mills was able to solidify things. What are you talking about? How do you know all of that? Is that true? I mean, maybe may- there were a couple of polls that suggested it was close, but how accurate were those? It how- may have been a sequential truth, but it was not any clear analysis of what really went on for voters. We Right. We, we don't. That that story is is the kind of retrofit analysis that could be true. It, it, it that could have been what happened, but there's no more reason to think that that's what happened than that something else happened. So anyway, my point is I, not to undermine everything we've just said in the course of this show, but I just think it's important for everyone who talks about this professionally, like we do, to accept a little bit of humility. And to really think deeply about what the voters really want and what they may be telling us when we have an election like yesterday. And on that note, we're going to have to wrap up this show. For Paul and Alicia, thanks so much. And we will see you next time on The Balance of Power.